message that we need Jesus. Whether we acknowledge we need him or not, uh, the reality is, is that we need him. He is the author of life. He is the very one who sustains creation. The scripture tells us in Colossians chapter 1 that all things were created by him and for him, that in him all things are held together, that we need Christ for every aspect of our lives. Thank you so much, Brother Joel. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, through Matthew chapter 10, verse 5. And as you're turning, as you're turning, we're continuing our study in the book of Matthew. And I know Pastor Steve uh, gave me a hard time about this, but I'm doing it anyway. Uh, the book of Matthew, we know, was written to whom? Matthew. All right, we're we're going to try that again because apparently it's been a couple weeks and we need to be reminded. The book of Matthew was written to, to the Jews. It was written by Matthew to the Jews, and it was written to present Jesus, to portray Jesus as the son of David. Very good, as the promised Messiah. And so we understand that Matthew was written to a specific audience by a specific person to convey a specific theme. That's why we see certain themes in the book of Matthew. So today as we look at the book of Matthew, I pray as you leave this place that you will have compassion for those who are around you. That's my prayer that as we leave that you will have compassion upon those who are around you. Matthew chapter 9 verse 35, I'm going to ask you to begin reading with me. Matthew chapter 9 verse 35. And Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest, to send out workers into the harvest. And having summoned his twelve disciples, he gave them authority over the unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax gatherer, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. The twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them. Let's pray. God, as we read these passages of Scripture, Lord, may you speak to our hearts, may you convict us of our arrogance, of our legalism, of our self-righteousness, or may you convince us through your Holy Spirit that we need Jesus. May you convince us, by your Holy Spirit, of our need for grace, that we may be gracious toward others. Lord, may you use your word to convict us of sin and bring us into obedience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I have three kids, and all three of my kids are so unbelievably unique. My youngest son is the most carefree. Nothing bothers him. 
he could have his hair on fire and he would be just fine. My daughter is most like me, which scares me because she's most like me and I know who I am. My oldest son is most like my wife. Everything has to be just so. He's a rule follower. He is, he is the, the, the quintessential oldest child. Everything has to be, he, he, he takes ownership of everything. He, he bosses his younger siblings around. He tells them what to do, when to do, how to do. But growing up, when Daniel was little, Daniel loved to dress up. It didn't matter if it was, if it was uh, trick-or-treat. It didn't matter what the, uh, what the situation was. Daniel loved to dress up, and he had costumes for everything. He had a Batman costume and Spider-Man, and he would dress up like a cowboy and a firefighter, and he was always dressing up. And, and he would go in his room, and he would come out, and he would have created some costume that, 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 that he wanted to be that day. And he was always dressing up, and he was always putting on putting on a different persona. He was always dressing up. And, and that was one, his imagination was, was so alive. And, and as, a, as, a young, uh, as a young kid, it was so awesome as parents to watch this child put on uh, these, these costumes and become, in his mind, he was Spider-Man. He was Superman. He was a firefighter. And he would have names for all these characters. And it was just amazing to watch this, this child use his imagination and become these other, these other people and these other things. I feel that in life, most of us put on a costume. We put on a mask. We put on a face. And that's how we face the world. And most of us, when we come in contact with our coworkers, when we come in contact with our friends, with our loved ones, with, with, with the people that, that play ball with our children, the people at the grocery store, we come in contact, not with who they are, but with the costume, with the mask, with the facade that they're wearing. We see them, not for who they are, but for who they want us to see. I want us to notice what the text says in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, it says that Jesus was going about all the cities and all the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And verse 36 says, and seeing the multitudes. Well, there's something that, that, that Christ had that was a little bit different than you and I. Christ was able to see people for who they were. He was able to see past the facade. He was able to see past the Pharisees' self-righteousness and see that you are a brood of vipers, that you are of your father, the devil. He was able to see the woman caught in adultery and see that, that the problem with her is that she was hurting, that she was in need of grace, she was in need of, of compassion. She was, he was able to see Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and see that this was a man who was, need of, who was in need of grace. He was not... Not some, some deceitful, wicked man, while yes, he was, but the reason was because he was hurting. He was in need of grace. Jesus was able to see past who they were on the outside to see their heart. And so, I want to challenge us with this question. Do we see people for who they really are? 
or do we see the masks and the facade and the costume that they put on? Each and every one of us know that, that, that we put on costumes. My wife has told me, she said, whenever you're around your friends, you're different than whenever you're at home. When you're around my parents, you're different than whenever you're at home. When you're around your parents, you're different than whenever you're at home. And it's because we all have personas. We all have masks. We all have costumes. And whenever we get around a certain group of people, we act a certain way. Uh, you know that when you go back home and you're with your family you haven't seen or you're with your friends you haven't seen in years, you act a different way. Some of us may even talk differently. We may, we may pick up that accent that we worked so hard to drop. And then we get around our friends that we haven't seen in 20, 30 years. And all of a sudden, we begin talking like them. We begin acting like them. We put on personas. We put on these images. We put on these facades. And so oftentimes, our facades and our masks disallow people to see us for who we really are. And oftentimes, we are unable to see people for who they really are. We see somebody who's bitter and somebody who's angry, and then we, in turn, get angry and bitter and retaliate rather than seeing the reason that they're angry is because they've been hurt. The reason that they're responding to me in bitterness and the reason that they're responding in anger and that they're responding in such a way is because they've been hurt. And they're angry because they've been betrayed. And they're bitter because they feel like they have no voice. We see somebody who's cold and distant and we respond. Not based upon who they are, but based upon the facade that they wear. Not realizing that they're cold and distant because they're lonely. Because they're broken. We see somebody who's a workaholic and somebody who places their work and, and is a perfectionist and puts their family on the back burner and we see somebody who is, who is who's a workaholic and, and we fail to see that the reason that they're a workaholic and the reason, that they're the reason that they are that way is because they're insecure and they don't like themselves and so this is their effort to, to garner favor from others to, to somehow perform at such a level that, that they will be approved by others that they will be affirmed by others we're often too concerned with ourselves to see people and recognize their need. I want us to notice Jesus seeing the multitudes, verse 36, seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion upon them. Now, when Jesus looked around and saw the multitudes, what did he see? He saw the tax collector. He saw the adulterer. He saw the prostitute. He saw the liar. He saw the thief. He saw the hypocrite, even amongst his disciples. He saw the zealot, Simon the zealot, the, the, the man who was, was by definition a rebel against authority. He saw Judas, the one who would betray him. He saw people and was able to look past their facade, past the mask that they wore, and was able to see their heart. Jesus had compassion on people. Compassion is the key to effective evangelism. Go with me, if you will, to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. Paul writes this in verse 14. He says, For it is the love of Christ 
that controls us or compels us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Paul said, as we look around the world around us, we need to understand that it is the love of Christ that compels us, that we were once in a, we were once ourselves dead in our sin. We were once ourselves liars, thieves, adulterers, and Christ redeemed us. We were once blind. We were once lost. We were once stuck in the miry clay, and Christ took us out of darkness, took us out of the miry clay, and set our feet upon the rock. Christ has redeemed us, and it is the love of Christ that compels us to look at others with compassion. Paul, uh, John, the beloved disciple, says it like this in verse 419. Chapter 4, verse 19, John says this. He says, we love because he first loved us. The compassion that we show others is because we have been shown compassion. And so I want us to understand that compassion is the key to effective evangelism. What is evangelism? Evangelism is sharing the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion, and he prayed. He said, the Lord, the, the, the fields are wide unto harvest, therefore, Lord, therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up workers. There is a reality that those who are around us are hurting. They're broken. They are lost in their transgression. They are lost in their sin. They are blinded, and they are striving to do the very best that they can but they have no idea what to do. And we, as the church, have the good news of the gospel. We have the key to eternal life, and we are sitting on it. The key to effective evangelism is compassion. Now, I want to contrast this with some of the ways that we have often sought to motivate people to evangelism. How many of you have ever been sitting in a church service and the preacher begins talking about someone who doesn't know Christ, and they begin telling you that if, if you don't go and if you don't share the gospel, then so-and-so is going to die and go to eternity in hell, and it is going to be your fault because you were unwilling to share the good news of the gospel. Or maybe they put a picture of an orphan from India or from China or from Africa on the screen, and they say, these children are going to die and go to hell unless you give or unless you serve or unless you go on this mission trip. And we, we as a church, we as the body of Christ, are motivated by guilt to share the gospel. Or maybe we're motivated by obligation. It's a command. Matthew chapter 28, as Jesus was departing on the earth, he said, as Jesus was giving his last commission, he said, therefore go. All authority has been given unto me, therefore go and make disciples. It's a command of the Lord. Poor exegesis says, a poor exegesis says that is. It's not a command, it's a participle. There as you go, therefore as you go, make disciples. But we've heard messages that says, it's a command of the Lord to go and make disciples. We've heard messages where it says, Paul commanded all of us everywhere to preach the gospel wherever we go. And so as Christians, we are obligated to share the good news. Or maybe you've been told that we're to share the good news because it is getting crowns for your crowns to throw at the feet of Jesus in glory. And as you go and you share the good news and as you go and you proclaim Christ, that, that you will have more crowns to throw at the feet of Jesus. Has anybody ever heard any of those forms of motivation for evangelism? If you haven't, it's because you haven't paid attention to most sermons. 
I told you that my youngest son was most carefree of all my children. That means that, that at times he's not always the most obedient of all my children. And whenever he started school, my wife and I were like, we don't know what to expect. I don't know if he's going to get a beating every day when he gets home. I don't know if we're going to have to, uh, to punish him. I don't know. We, we don't know what to happen. And so, so we began very systematically trying to, to figure out what motivates him. And so we figured out that bribery works very well. Works very well. And, and, and it, it's, it's easy because at six, he's still very, very easy to bribe. You know, the older my children get, the more expensive the bribes get. Right now, I can bribe him and I can say, Nicholas, if all week you have A pluses in conduct, then we'll go to Dollar Tree and Dad will buy you anything you want. And he is thrilled. He doesn't realize that, that the stuff at Dollar Tree is just junk. And, and it doesn't matter. It, 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 I can scrape up enough change in the couch cushions to go to Dollar Tree and get him whatever he wants. But he's thrilled. But bribery works. And so last week he got all A pluses. Well, not this past week. Two weeks ago he got all A pluses. <laughs> yeah, this, this, this past week, not, not, not so much. And he said, Dad, I got all A pluses. When are we going to Dollar Tree? And I said, well, as soon as Dad can find time, we're going to go to Dollar Tree and we're going to get you whatever you want. He is on cloud nine. But I want us to understand that that is not the motivation for evangelism that we see in the Gospels. It's not. Why do we love? Because we were first loved. Why are we compelled to go and share the Gospel? Because we have been recipients of the Gospel. We are motivated, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, that we are compelled by the love of Christ. That we are motivated by love. I want us to look at John chapter 13, verse 34. A very interesting passage. John says this, in John chapter 13, verse 34. He says this, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. Well, how is that a new commandment? Deuteronomy, we, hear, we have the passage, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, that you should love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then we see this other passage that says that you should love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, when, when asked about the, the greatest commandment, Jesus said this, He said, Greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, here we see Jesus saying, there's a new commandment I give to you. What's new about it? Look at the text. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, not as you would want to be loved, but as I have loved you. Not love your neighbor as yourself, but love your neighbor as I, as Christ has loved you. So let's go back to the passage. Our focal passage, chapter 9, verse 36. Jesus looked at the multitudes and he was moved with compassion. He saw them. He saw the prostitute and didn't see her as an adulterer, but saw her as someone who was, stri- who was crying out to be loved somebody who was hurting, somebody who had been, been 
left by all of society and an and, and outcast. And Jesus said, I love her because she is mine. He looked at the beggar. He looked at the child. He looked at, at the downcast. Look at what the text says in chapter 9, verse 35. I'm sorry, sorry verse 36. He had compassion on them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them. Not because, not because of their costume that they were wearing, not because of their facade, but he was able to see past that to their heart. So here's the question I have for us. Are we able to look around the world that we live in, our co-workers, our acquaintances, our friends, and our family, and are we able to see them for who they are? And are we able to have compassion on them? Right now, as I'm talking, as I am, as I am asking you this question, there are people that are coming to your mind. There are people that, that, that you have responded based upon the fact that they're a jerk or that they're not nice to you or that, or that, that, that they're a liar or that, that they're a thief or that they're a drug addict or they're an alcoholic or they're, they're whatever, whatever their circumstance is. And you've avoided them. You have, you have treated them in a way that is inconsistent with what Christ calls us to. I'm asking you this morning, who is that person? We have compassion because we have been the recipient of compassion. Where were you? Where would you be apart from the grace of God? I want us also to understand that there is no methodology that guarantees success in evangelism. We are to love because Christ loved us. As we look through the New Testament, it would be easy to pick a passage of scripture and say, well, this is how we need to do evangelism. It's how Jesus did evangelism. It's how Paul did evangelism. It's how Peter did evangelism. It's how we need to do evangelism. But I want to point out that all throughout the New Testament, there are different methodologies and different ways in which the characters in the New Testament practiced evangelism that are completely different. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. The Holy Spirit sent Philip. He said, go, there's a road over there. You'll find somebody. Share the gospel with them. He was on the road. There's this guy who's reading a passage in Isaiah. And Philip explains to him the passage. The guy trusts Jesus. He gets baptized in a mud puddle. We see Paul and Silas in prison. They begin singing praises to God in the midnight. The Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, shakes the foundation of the prison. All the gates are open up. All the cells are open. The, the jailer comes in and he's about to kill himself. Paul says, don't kill yourself. We're all here. He shares the gospel with him. The jailer and his whole household get saved. Trust Jesus and him alone for their salvation. Zacchaeus. Jesus is walking down the road. He sees Zacchaeus up in a tree. He says, come down. I'm going to have dinner at your house. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? I know that you're from God. He says, you've got to be born again. He says, I can't be born again. I've already been born. He says, no, not, not born a second time, but born from above. All throughout the New Testament, there's different methodologies for sharing the gospel. Peter preaches to 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost, and they get saved. Philip shares one-on-one -on -one with the Ethiopian eunuch. Paul pre preaches to a whole prison. There are multiple methodologies that we see 
are effective in the New Testament. So what is it that we can extract from this passage? The principles that we can extract are this. Effective evangelism, effective evangelism begins with vision. You have to see people for who they are. And secondly, you have to have compassion for who they are and the circumstance that they're in. It's easy to see people for who they are and pass judgment upon them. It's easy to see people for who they are and pray like the Pharisees, God, I thank you that I am not like them. What is Christ-like is to see people for who they are and be moved with compassion. What's interesting, if we go back to the text, verse 36, Jesus was moved with compassion in verse 37. He said to the disciples, go share with them the message of the gospel. Right? Is that what your text says? Seeing the multitudes, Jesus was moved with compassion. Therefore, he told his disciples, go and share the good news of the gospel. That is not what the text says. Look at what the text says. He says this. He says, Jesus saw them, seeing the multitudes. He was moved with compassion. And then this was his response. Verse 37. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He looked out amongst the multitude and said that there are thousands upon thousands upon hundreds of thousands upon millions of people who are in need of the gospel of grace. They are in need of the message that transforms us, that brings us life, that, that, that results in a life that is transformed. There are millions who need the gospel. Therefore, verse 38 Therefore, ask, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Notice who the responsibility is placed upon. It is not placed upon the disciples, is it? Jesus, moved with seeing the multitudes, moved with compassion, told them, ask God to do what only He can do. Church, I want us to understand something when we share the good news of gospel, the good news of the gospel of Jesus, we are not campaigning for Jesus. He doesn't need your vote. He's already in office. The scripture tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that God has made him Lord of all. That God Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. I want you to see this not from the preacher's mouth. I want you to see this from the Word of God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Sorry, Brother Chris, I didn't give you this one. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. It says, And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, and by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross... Verse 9, Therefore God was highly pleased to exalt him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those who are in heaven and earth and under the earth, and at the name of Jesus every tongue should confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
So who is it that made Jesus Lord to the glory of God the Father? God the Father. Not you, not me. So when we're proclaiming the good news of Jesus, we are not persuading people to vote for Jesus. What we are doing, what we are doing is we are communicating that Jesus is Lord. And that only God can do what must be done. Only God can redeem us. Only God can transform us. Only God can take us out of the miry clay and place our feet upon the rock. Only God can transform a life. Only God can take our heart that is darkened in sin and and give us a new heart. Ezekiel chapter 37. I will take your heart of stone and I will replace it with a heart of flesh. Only God can do that. Only God can do what must be done. Jesus' command to the disciples is see the lostness, see the need, have compassion upon them, and pray that God would do something in their hearts. Pray that God would raise up workers. Pray that God would raise up ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Notice after he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest, he then goes into the list of the workers that God has given him. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest, beseech the Lord of the harvest, beg him to raise up workers because the fields are white unto harvest and the workers are few. And then verse 10, chapter 10, verse 1, having summoned the 12 disciples, we then give them, we then get a list of the 12 disciples. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast out demons, heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And then we get a list of the 12 disciples. What I want to point out to you in this list is that there's something that is overwhelmingly obvious in this list. And it is the ordinariness of these men. There is no royalty. There is no money. There is no clout. There is no importance. In fact, what we see is the sheer ordinariness of the disciples. It's interesting that God chose ordinary men to do extraordinary things. That is the case all throughout Scripture. God chooses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. You say, preacher, there's no way that God can use me. If you knew what I've done, if you knew what I'm continuing to do, if you knew my heart, there's no way that God could use me. My response is very simple. If God can use me, I know He can use you. God's desire is to use ordinary, broken vessels to do extraordinary things. The secret to their extraordinariness is not in them, it's in their relationship to Jesus. John chapter 15, verse 5 says this, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you can bear much fruit apart from me. You can do nothing. It says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, 
Their confidence is not, Paul's confidence is not in his ability, but it's in God's ability. It says, I am confident of this one thing, that he who began a good work in me is faithful and just to complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. Paul's confidence is not in himself, it's in God, it's in his relationship with Christ. And so how is it, how is it that these ordinary men, fishermen, tax collectors, rebels, liars, thieves, cheats, adulterers, addicts, how is it that God can use them? I can promise you it's not because of them, it's because of their relationship to Christ. So this morning, in just a few moments, we're going to do something a little different during our invitation time. Around the building, around the room, you see we've got some signs. One says Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, as Jesus was about to ascend into heaven, he makes this statement. He says, and you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem... Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus said, the fields are wide unto harvest. Therefore, pray, beseech the Lord of the harvest, that he might raise up workers. During the invitation time, I'm going to have prayer leaders at these different areas. Jerusalem is that which is closest to us, our church family. Judea is that which is in our area. Our school, Riverdale Christian Academy, is the primary mission field of Redeemer Baptist Church. Samaria is our community, that which is around surrounding us, our neighborhoods, the park next door, the apartment complexes around here, your neighbors, your co-workers, your community. And then the ends of the earth, the nations. God has called us to take the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There are thousands upon thousands who have never heard of Jesus. So many of us in this world Western culture are infatuated with the second coming of the Lord Jesus. As I was in India a couple of years ago, there's a big mural on the wall, and it says this. So many of us speak about the second coming of Christ when there are so many who've never heard of the first coming of Jesus. We need to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so this morning, church, I'm going to ask you, Who has God laid upon your heart? As we've been preaching, and we've been teaching from the message of of, of Matthew chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 10, and we understand that it is the love of Christ that compels us, that we are to see people for who they are, and we are to be moved with compassion, and that we are to pray to the God of the harvest that He would do something that only He can do. Who is it that God has placed upon your heart? Is it someone in our church? Is it our church family? Is it our school, our school family? Is it our community, those who are around us? Or is it the nations? I'm going to have prayer leaders at each one. And as we go into this time of invitation, we're going to pray to the God of the harvest that He would do what only He can do. Jesus said, My Father's house is designed, is meant to be a house of 
prayer. The only way that the Spirit of God is going to fall and is going to move in us and through us is if we acknowledge our dependence upon Him and we beseech, we beg, we plead for the Lord of the harvest to move. But before we do, there's maybe someone here who needs to trust Jesus. Before you can be used by God to reach the lost world with the message of the good news of Jesus, you've got to receive the good news of Jesus. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a time. I'm going to ask Joel if he would come up. We're going to have a time of invitation, and then we're going to go into prayer, and I'm going to give you some very clear instructions whenever it's time to do that. So would you pray with me? God, if we ask that your Holy Spirit would fall upon us this morning. We've been given clear instruction in your word to look around us, to see those who are lost, to see those who are hurting, to look past their anger, look past their bitterness, look past their, their loneliness, and see them for who they are in need of compassion and then to pray for them. To pray that God would do what only He can do, that He would change their hearts. I pray right now, Lord, that You would lay someone on every person's heart in here. But there may be someone here this morning that needs to give Jesus their, their life, that needs to say, I am no longer trying to be good enough for God and I want Christ to be good enough on my behalf. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to come. Well, we pray that this would be a time where your church would be mobilized to be obedient to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.